got Diane Court again. Well, that's unlikely. Is the movies a good second date, you know, as a, as a date? But you never had a first date. Yes, I did. I sat across from her in a mall. We ate together. We ate. That's eating, sharing an important physical event. That's not even a scam. What's a scam? Going out as friends. No, it's not. Scam is lusting. Then what's a, what's a date? date? A date is prearrangement with the possibility for love. Well, then what's love? I'm gonna call her. Diane Court doesn't go out with guys like you. She's a brain. Trapped in the body of a game show hostess. Diane Court does not realize how good looking she is. This sounds great to me, man. I'm gonna call her. That's what's cool about her. Brains stay with brains. The bomb could go off and their mutant genes would form the same cliques. I wouldn't get my hopes up, Lloyd. I'm sorry. It's just you're a really nice guy and we don't want to see you get hurt. I want to get hurt. Quick question. Do you, do you know who I am? Yes, we sat together at Bell Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember? You remember? No, I read it on the message. Okay, um, so it's Lloyd and, um, uh, let's go out. Oh, thanks, but I'm busy. Morning, honey. Dad, I'm so glad I went. Good night. Wait, wait, wait a minute. How was Lloyd? <sighs> Lloyd was such a gentleman. He was funny and nervous and strange, and I met people that I would have never met before, and then I blew it. I called him basic. Can you believe I did that? Well... I don't think he's reeling in embarrassment. <laughs> she broke up with me. What do I do? Can't she come back? How can I get her back? I can't. I can't get her to talk to me. I feel like crying. She gave me a pen. She gave my heart and she gave me a pen. Morning, everybody, and welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. Great big welcome to all of you joining us for worship right now. Uh, we just ran the emotional gamut with Lloyd Dobler. Uh, we saw the nervous energy and the excitement as he's working up the courage to call up Diane Court and ask her to go out on a date with him. Uh, we saw the joy that was overflowing and the hope and the possibility for a bright future after that first date goes really, really well. And then we saw the heartache, the devastation, the hopelessness when Diane Court breaks up with him. I don't know what your week has been like. Maybe you've been running the emotional gamut this week. Maybe you've been running the emotional gamut in the last 30 minutes just trying to get everybody here to church. Whatever the case may be, we're going to do something as we get started in the message that we do every once in a while, and it's been a while. We're going to do an emotion check. So uh, get out your phones, or if you have paper and a, a writing utensil, get that out. And we're going to take 60 seconds. They give me 35 minutes to preach to you each week, but next week is my final week before I go on sabbatical, so I got a lot to say. We might be here longer than 35 minutes. But we're going to take one minute to think about these questions. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I afraid and anxious about? What am I glad about? And just write down some thoughts that pop into your mind as we do this, and away we go.
One minute. Uh, goes pretty fast. Maybe for some of you it was the longest minute of your week. I don't know. Um, I think this is a pretty easy thing for us to do. And I think it's a really important thing for us to do if we are serious about our faith. If we are serious about growing as followers of Jesus Christ, this emotion check is something we should do on a pretty regular basis. Whenever anyone asks me, I always say my favorite Bible verse is John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, talking, and he says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. In other words, there's a force at work in our lives that's trying to rob us of life. Jesus says he is and wants to be a different force in our lives. My purpose is to give them, to give people, to give you and me a rich and satisfying life. John chapter 10, verse 10, when I memorized that as a little boy, the translation I memorized it from was the New International Version, and it's just translated a little bit differently. We'll put it up on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, Jesus is extending this invitation to every single one of us. I have a full life for you. Don't need a show of hands or anything, but I wonder how many of us would be interested in a more full life. Maybe some of you are walking in today feeling completely empty. You'd like a much fuller life. Others of you, life is pretty good. Just baptized a couple of kids. Life's pretty good. But still, I think we could all say, one of the things we all have in common, uh, a little more fullness in my life, that would be okay. This has been my favorite verse for most of my life. And for most of my life, I have misunderstood or misinterpreted what Jesus is saying. For, for many, many years, decades in fact, I, I like this verse because I believed what this verse meant was, if I'm a person of faith, if I'm a Christian, if I'm following after Jesus, what that means is those first three questions on the emotion check, I'll never have anything to write down. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious or afraid about? Nothing, because Jesus is my rock and he rolls my blues away baby. Isn't that a good line? You can tweet that one. Actually, it's lyrics from a song that we sang at the church camp that I went to when I was a kid. Jesus is my rock and he rolls my blues. You got to do kind of an Elvis voice to it, which I don't have. Jesus is my rock and he rolls my blues away. He rolls my blues away. He rolls my blues. Anyway, <clears throat> this is, aren't mine's weird thing? No, please don't. I haven't thought of that for like 40 years. I'm sitting down working on this sermon and all of a sudden it pops into my mind. Where does that come from? Anyway, for most of my life when I thought about what, what's Jesus' invitation to a life that's full, I thought it means no anger, no sadness, no fear. Instead, life is going to be 24-7. And so why wouldn't I follow Jesus if that's the offer? In the last five to ten years, I've started to think about this verse a little bit differently interpreting it through a different lens, I'm convinced a more faithful lens. That, that part of what Jesus is getting at, when Jesus says, I've come that you would have life to the full, Jesus is saying, you guys know what this is? It's a Hoberman sphere. It's, in, in fact, it's the original Hoberman sphere is how they market this sucker. It goes from nine inches to 30 inches just like that. And so I think when Jesus is talking about a full life, he was imagining a Hoberman sphere. That living a life of faith, following after Jesus, shaping our life around Jesus more and more all the time, our life is going to be expanding. Our life is going to be growing. This, this is what a fullness of life looks like. Jesus invites us to move from here to here. 
here to here. Isn't it fun? You wish you had one right now, don't you? Um, the New Testament writers are very interested in eternity. And the word that they use, the Greek word that they use to talk about eternity, it's a word that carries with it the idea of no boundaries. No boundaries. That's eternal or eternity, which makes sense to us because we're very linear thinkers. We think of eternity. There's no beginning. There's no end. Eternity is boundaryless, but it's very linear for us. The New Testament understanding of eternity is not linear. It's more full than that. It's three-dimensional. It's spherical. So there's no beginning and no end to eternity, sure, but there's also no top. There's no bottom to eternity. It's boundaryless. And this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at in Ephesians chapter 3. He's writing a letter. Uh, we're, we're looking at the book of Romans today, but he writes a bunch of other letters. He writes the uh, book of Ephesians, a letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. And in the middle of that letter in chapter 3, he just stops to pray for the people of that church. And through the living and active word of God, this is Paul's prayer for you and me today. I pray that you would have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love for you is. This is Paul trying to help us understand God's love is eternal. It's boundaryless. It just keeps going and going and going. It's continually expansive. This is how God's love works. In the next verse, he says this, verse 19, may you experience the love of Christ. So we're going to talk about God's love. We're going to study God's love. We're going to think about God's love. That's all good and important. But Paul says you can also experience the love of Christ. It's too great. This goes from nine inches to 30 inches. God's love just keeps going and going and going. It's so big. It's so expansive. We cannot <clears throat> understand it fully. But as we live a life of faith, We'll have growing experiences of it. And as we do, we will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So maybe we have an understanding of God when we first start out following after Jesus that's kind of like this. But the hope, following Jesus is a growing experience. It's one of our core values. And as we grow, it's this three-dimensional, spherical, more full, more full, more full all the time. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, how does this connect to the emotion check that we did at the beginning of the service? I, I think people have a tendency to fall into one of two groups when it comes to feelings and emotions. Maybe you're like me. And I think for people of faith especially, this is a temptation for us. This is not good. We think there's something wrong with our faith when we feel sad or when we get filled with anger or when we're filled with fear. We, we think it's somehow a sign of a weak faith. And so when we feel those feelings, we just pretend them away. We just ignore them. And the longer we go through life ignoring those feelings, instead of having this growing, expanding faith, it limits our faith. Think about it this way. There is a correlation. Uh, the degree to which I'm willing to experience what I might call, I don't know, painful emotions, sadness, sorrow, grief, uh, loss, anger, the degree to which I'm willing to engage in and experience that is the degree to which I'll be able to experience love. If I'm not going to engage with those emotions, it will limit my experience of love and peace and hope and joy. So some people fall in the ditch of ignoring those emotions. Other people, I think, fall in the ditch of wallowing in them. I'm just going to wallow in my fears. I'm going to wallow in my anger. I'm going to wallow in my sadness. And that also limits our experience of love and joy. So what does it look like? Christianity following Jesus is a growing experience. What's this full life 
that God invites us into, we may not like it, but what the Bible teaches, if I'm going to experience the fullness of the life that God has for me, that includes experiencing the fullness of sorrow and anger and hardship and suffering right alongside the fullness of God's love for me. And this is what this section of the letter of Romans that we're going to dig into today is all about. So if you're new to Hope, great big welcome to you. Our uh, goal, our challenge as a congregation this year, we want to read through the whole Holy Bible together. And so this month we're in the book of Romans. Now, just a word of grace to everybody on this. I was talking to someone last night after the five o'clock Saturday service. She's been going to church her whole life. She's been coming here for more than a decade. And she said, Scott, I've never done this before. I've never done the read through the whole Bible in a year thing before. And it has been so good for me. It has been such a... uh, faith-building thing for me. The pieces are coming together in different ways. It's been like one of the things she's glad about on the emotion check is that we're reading through the Bible uh, in a year together as a church. Now, she's not doing it perfectly. There are days that she misses. And so if you have fallen off the Bible reading uh, wagon, just hop back on. And don't worry about trying to catch up. Just start with our readings for this week. Or if you never started, there's no time like the present to start. Let's all just start again reading the, the book of Romans. Pastor Mike started the message series last week pointing to those early chapters of the book of Romans where Paul reminds us of the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Old Testament, and that is to fill us with guilt. (laughs) Uh, It's to remind us we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, and the law is necessary to help us understand that, not deceive ourselves. At the same time, in those early chapters, Paul points to the power of grace and the hope of the good news, the, the gospel. The wages or the consequences of our sin is death, but the free gift, the power of grace, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's our faith, and we hold both of those in tension. We need both. The law serves a purpose, and grace serves a purpose. Even those of us who have kind of that full understanding, who believe heaven is our future home, who, who believe in the power of the resurrection, doesn't life have a way of sucking the life out of us? sucking the joy of our salvation out of us? Doesn't life have a way uh, of filling us with doubts about whether or not what we believe is the truth, is reality? This happens, I think, in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it happens in really big ways. You go through tragic experiences or traumatic experiences. It can suck the joy of salvation out of us. But it also happens in tiny, um, just kind of the monotonous, day-to-day, ordinary frustrations and challenges of life. It can suck the life out of us. It can rob us of joy. So um, I want to show you another scene from this movie, Say Anything. Uh, Lloyd Dobler is a senior in high school. He has just graduated. That's when the movie begins, his graduation day. He has spent at least his senior year of high school living with his sister Constance in Seattle, Washington. Their parents are a military family. They are stationed over in Germany. So he's in Seattle with Constance, who is a single mother, raising her uh, young son, Jason. And as you watch this scene, watch for John 10.10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Take a look. Lloyd? Hey, sis. I'm sorry. Sam had me do a new crown. We had root canals to do, and Jason had a sore throat. Your big graduation and no one was there. It's no problem. I called mom and dad in Germany. It's like they were there. I hope 
understand. Hey, back throat, huh, J-Man? Yeah. Yeah, he's not a full yeah strength. Poor little man. Why do you eat that stuff? There's no food in your food. Not too loud. The red line's there for a reason. How do you know how to draw the red line anyway? Because it's loud enough and the neighbors don't complain. That's how come I know. Good thing there's not a red line on you, J-Man. Yeah! Yeah! He's back. Hey, my brother, can I buy a copy of your Hey Soul classics? No, my brother, you have to go buy your own. Hook it off the jab. Hook off the jab. Why can't you be his uncle and not his playmate? What? Get in a good mood. How hard is it just to decide to be in a good mood and then be in a good mood? Gee, it's easy. You know, I'm really sorry that mom and dad made you take me here. Really? If it's such a big deal, I'll go. But remember this, you used to be fun. You used to be warped and twisted and hilarious. And I mean that in the best way, I mean it as a compliment. I mean, I'm sorry. But T-I-M left you. But I am not T-I-M. That was hilarious once, wasn't it? Yeah. That's the way. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious or afraid about? What am I glad about? I've done that exercise five times in the last 18 hours. I come up with something new <laughs> that I'm angry about pretty much every service. Isn't that crazy? It's important for us to do this if we're interested in being followers of Jesus because uh, it helps our faith grow. It's important for us to pay attention to what's going on inside. What am I feeling, but also why am I feeling it? If we ignore it, if we pretend it away, if we're not aware of it, it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just going to sneak out sideways, which is what happens in that clip. Constance, uh, Lloyd's sister, she's a hardworking single mom. And she has all kinds of frustrations and disappointments with her life and the way it's going. And in that scene, it just kind of comes out and it's all directed at Lloyd. She's criticizing him. He's eating the wrong kind of food. And he's listening to his music too loud. And he's not being the right kind of uncle. Criticism, criticism, criticism. But it's not really about Lloyd, is it? When I was a teenager, high school, college student, watching this movie for the first time and the tenth time, my favorite line in the whole movie was this line, what Lloyd says in response to this unfair criticism from his sister. He says, how hard is it to just decide to be in a good mood? And, and young Scott thought, yeah, just wake up in the morning and make a decision. I'm going to be in a good mood today. It's simple. Now, 51-year-old Scott kind of is in agreement with his sister Constance, her sarcasm there, uh, gee, yeah, it's really, it's not simple. It's not just a decision that, that we can make. There's a whole lot going on. Life is really good at times, and life is really difficult at times. And so the question for people of faith is, what difference does our faith make in those hard times? When, when hardship and trial and suffering enters our life, what difference does our faith in God make? And Paul has some important things to say about that in Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. Here's Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. 
We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. This is Paul talking about being resilient, right? It's kind of a a buzzword in schools, kind of a buzzword for people in our culture these days. We want to be resilient human beings. We want to have grit. Parents want their kids to grow uh, these resilient kinds of traits because there's going to be problems, there's going to be trials that come our way. Notice Paul doesn't say if, he says when we run into problems and trials. But I see parents falling into a couple of ditches on this. Uh, Sometimes parents are kind of like Lloyd's friends at the beginning uh, of that first clip. We don't want you to get hurt, Lloyd. Don't get your hopes up too much, Lloyd. Um, They're trying to protect him to make sure he doesn't run into problems and trials. And parents do this with their kids too. Get in there and try to remove the obstacles because they don't want to see their kids get hurt. But when we do that, it doesn't help our kids become resilient. So that's a ditch we want to avoid. The other ditch parents fall into, and this happens in religious world a lot, well, you know, suffering problems and trials, it leads to endurance and ultimately it builds character. I want to build character in my kids, so I'm just going to make life miserable for them. It's going to be hard and difficult uh, to be raised in my home, and this is me loving you, building character in you. They don't need any extra help finding things that are hard in their life. And so we want to avoid that ditch as well. And so every single one of us, doesn't matter how old we are, doesn't matter our age, We've all got problems and trials we're trying to make sense of. Sometimes people call up the church and they say they want to meet with, you know, maybe Pastor Ashley, or maybe they want to meet with our student ministry director, Emily, or our children's ministry director, Christy, because there's something going on they just want to talk about. I I don't know what uh, those other staff members talk about when they get together with people from the church, but when people call me and say, hey, can we talk? It hardly ever goes like this. It's a, a married couple that comes in, they want to talk, and they say, Scott, our marriage is perfect. It's just bliss. It has been for 20 years. It's wonderful, and we just thought you would want to know. Or parents calling me up and saying, hey, can we come in? Sure. And they say, I hear from a lot of people how difficult parenting is, but it's not for us. I mean, it's just been a pe- Everything, it's just wonderful, 24-7, all the time, fantastic. And so we wondered, do you want us to teach everybody else how to be parents like us? That doesn't happen. It doesn't have, instead, people come in and they want to talk about problems and trials. And it's a real holy, it's a real honor, a privilege for me to be able to, and I try really hard in those moments not to go to this verse and say, God's just building character in you. Which may be true, but it's not the most pastoral thing to say in those moments. Paul says, problems and trials lead to endurance and endurance develops strength of character. Let's talk about character for a little bit. Uh, The word that Paul uses for character is a Greek word, dokime. And dokime is a financial or economic term. In the Roman Empire, they didn't have uh, paper currency. They didn't have credit cards. It was all metal coins, right? So you got these precious metal, gold or silver or copper, and you uh, heated it up, melted it down, and poured it into molds to make coins. So you have a drachma or a denarius or a shekel. And these coins... Uh, what made it a shekel or what made it a denarius? Sure, they stamped something on it, but it was determined by weight. How much it weighed was this is what determined what currency you had or what coin you had. So what people figured out was if I have, let's say I have 100 shekels, if I shave each one of those down just a little bit, 
it's still going to be pretty close to the, the right weight for a shekel, but I could take all those shavings and I could melt that down and mold it into another shekel. Now, all of a sudden, I've taken my 100 shekels and I have 101. I've made a profit or I've committed fraud, depending on your uh, perspective, I suppose. So historians tell us in the Roman world, in the city of Athens, there was a century where this was such a problem. Over a 100-year period of time, 80 separate laws were passed to try to get rid of the problem of money shaving. Money shaving. Now, uh, some people were money changers. Jesus talks about money changers in the temple all the time. I've got a bunch of denarius, but I want to change them in for some shekels or whatever. Um, money changers, some of them were honest. Some of them were full of integrity. And they would carefully measure the coins to make sure that everyone was doing this the way it, it's supposed to happen and nobody was being cheated. And if you were one of those money changers full of integrity, you got a name, you got a label that went along with you. They called you an approved money changer. And the Greek word for approved was dokimos. Dokimos is the root word for dokime, the word that Paul uses for character, approved. So it's like Paul is saying in Romans 5, Problems and trials that come into our life have a way of testing or proving our character. Here's another verse, Proverbs 17, verse 3. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Look at this. The Lord is very interested in the condition of our heart. What's going on on the inside? Another reason why it's important for people of faith to do this emotion check on a pretty regular basis, if God is interested in what's going on inside, then maybe I should take note and be aware of and be interested in what's going on inside of me as well. Sometimes when we start talking about problems and uh, trials and testing and suffering, sometimes we make the mistake of saying, God is the one who is causing this suffering, this problem in my life. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is problems and trials come, and when they come, it's an opportunity to test our faith. How do we respond in these moments? Paul says we can re rejoice when we face problems and trials. And there's other ways we can respond too. How are you responding to the problems and trials you are facing? Are you rejoicing or are you responding some other way? When somebody interrupts you, how do you respond? When you're telling a story and your spouse interjects and doesn't let you finish, how do you respond? When you don't get your way, when things aren't going the way that you want, when you're driving through the streets of Ankeny and there's all of a sudden road construction <laughs> and you seem like you're the only one who understands what a zipper merge is, how do you, we're all learning, right? How do you respond? When your two-year-old decides, I'm not going to take a nap, and I'm just going to throw a fit later on. Or your air conditioner breaks down, your hot water heater goes out, the car breaks down, your boss gives you a project, it's going to take you the next six months, and you're not excited or passionate about it at all. Or you get that medical diagnosis that's really scary. How do you respond? In the early pages of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, he points back to creation. He points back to original sin, which is really pride. Adam and Eve saying, we want to be like God. And, and this original sin of pride gets us to a place where like, there is no God, or I am God. And so now we get to chapter 5, and Paul's like, okay, Mr. 
Mrs. Pride, you think you, all, you have all this power to figure out life and everything that's going on? Here comes some problems. Here comes some trials. Here comes some suffering in your life. You have the power to fix that? So problems and trials, according to Paul, are also a reminder how desperately you and I are in need of the power of God, the help of God. We can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. For the rest of the message, I want to talk about the source of our confident hope. There's a guy named David Fredrickson. He's a professor at Luther Seminary up in St. Paul. He writes books about the social world of the Roman Empire. And he says, yeah, those Greeks and those Romans, they would have, they would have been tracking with Paul through the first part of this. Suffering leads to endurance. Endurance leads to character. Yep, we're with you. But as soon as he starts talking about hope, they would have said, you've lost it. That's crazy talk. Hope is not a good thing. The ancients believed hope was a dangerous thing. It was a, a sign of weakness. They, they would have not have had time to talk about what is an abundant life or what is a full life. How does Because their understanding of the world is the world is this cold, hard, impersonal place. We don't have time to talk about a rich and satisfying life, life to the full. We're just trying to survive here. We're in survival mode. And so the strategy for survival that they develop is look out for number one. Just take care of yourself. Just make sure that you can muster up whatever strength you have, whatever, I don't know, strength of will or uh, self-sufficient reason that you've got enough of whatever it is that you need that you can survive whatever the world's going to throw at you. This is the world into which Paul writes this letter to the church of Rome, and he's going to end up doing something really cool. Uh, but this message series is called Romans Runs Deep, and we're going to have to dig deep, and we're going to have to think hard to get us to that point. There's a payoff coming at the end, so I will do my best to keep you awake as we make our way through it, because I think it's totally worth it and super important to understand what Paul is up to here, really what the gospel is up to here. So here we go. Uh, the ancient Greco-Roman world, they viewed suffering in some ways the same as we do, but in some ways differently. So for example, they said suffering's easier if you can share it with a friend. We would agree with that. We're all going to suffer. Let's just make sure we don't suffer alone. Aristotle said suffering is lightened by the sympathy of a friend. So we're all in agreement with the Romans easier if we share suffering with a friend. The second thing they talked about, though, is interesting. There are times when someone might be willing to suffer for someone else. And they thought that was an okay thing, a good thing, a virtuous thing. So Cicero would write about going to a Greek play, a Greek tragedy, and maybe at some point in the middle of the play there's a scene where somebody lays down their life for one of the other characters. And he said the, the audiences loved this, they would weep, they would stand to their feet, they would cheer, they would applaud this virtuous, noble act, someone laying down their life for their friend. But there were limits to the virtue of sacrifice. If you're going to sacrifice for someone, that someone better be someone who deserves it, someone who is worthy of your sacrifice, someone who has earned that kind of uh, act from you. In other words, there's no virtue to sacrifice for a person who lacks virtue. 
The other limit they had on this, if you're going to be a good friend and enter into the suffering of someone else, that's, that's a good, a noble, virtuous thing to do. You just cannot allow the pain and suffering of your friend to disturb your inner peace. You can't let it affect you. You have to remain unaffected by all of their emotions, all of their pain, all of their suffering. And if you couldn't hack it, if you start engaging with the pain in the world, your pain, your friend's pain, and it becomes overwhelming for you, becomes too much for you, they had a name for someone like that. They called you a groaner. And groaning was viewed as a sign of weakness. Groaning was for people who were so weak they couldn't deal with the reality of life. And you know what groaning sounds like, don't you? It's summer. Mom, I'm so bored. What are you cooking for dinner? Groan. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious or afraid about? Think of those things that you were writing down or thinking about when we did the emotion check. Those are the things in your life that lead you to groan. And so I'm going to give you permission. We're just going to groan together on the count of three. You ready for this? Well, let me hear your best groan. One, two, three. Ah! We, we are not a perfect church, but we're really good at groaning. That's fantastic. So the Romans, no groaning allowed. Instead, the goal was to become someone who could master your inner world. And they called that person a conqueror. Everybody say conqueror. So Seneca, a Stoic philosopher, has this to say about conquerors. When will it be our privilege to utter the words I have conquered? Do you ask me whom, have I, uh, whom I have conquered? Not external enemies. Remember, Seneca is not a military hero. There's a lot of Roman military heroes conquering enemies, external enemies on the battlefield. That's not what he's talking about. Not external enemies, but greed, ambition, fear of death. All of these things that could disturb me internally, that has conquered the conquerors. He's like, you could be the best military general in the history of the Roman Empire, but if you can't master your emotions, conquer your emotions, weak sauce. So, we don't want to be groaners. We do want to be conquerors. A conqueror is someone who musters up enough, whatever, intellect, willpower, that I'm, I'm still suffering. Nothing's changed. My circumstances haven't changed. The world's still going to hell, but I'm unfazed by it. That's a conqueror. And it's these two kind of categories. In the highest goal or ideal in the philosophical world of the Roman Empire, let's become conquerors. Again, Hang with me here, because Paul's doing something super cool, super cool, super cool. Back to groaners really quickly. Lots of people in the Roman world talked about how terrible it was to be a groaner. Epictetus, no good man ever groans. Plutarch said groaning is a sign of weakness. Cicero says it is a disgrace to groan. Are you with me that the Romans did not like groaners? All right? This is the world into which Paul writes the book of Romans. And if you were paying attention to the Bible reading that Jennifer read for us earlier from Romans 8, groaning shows up a lot, like in verse 22. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. We know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. What kind of nonsense is this? Creation groans? What's that even mean? That's a strange idea, isn't it? In uh, ancient literature, the Greeks and the Romans, they would tell stories and the authors would sometimes write, uh, they would personify nature as if nature had empathy or sympathy with human suffering. Now, 
We think that sounds maybe strange. Movies do this all the time. The end of that scene we just, where Lloyd Dobler's running the emotional gamut and Diane Court breaks up with him and he's on the phone uh, talking with his sister, what's the weather doing? It's raining. It's as if all of creation is groaning right along with Lloyd Dobler with the horrible thing that he's having to go through. Creation groans. And Paul tells us why. It's waiting to be redeemed. It's waiting to be set free from the consequences of sin and death and decay. Creation groans, Paul says. And then in verse 23, not only that, we believers also groan for the same reason. We long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. A day is coming. Heaven is coming. Resurrection is coming. But until that day, we pray for heaven and earth to come together, and we wait, and we groan. Creation groans, Paul groans, believers groan, you groan, I groan, and then Paul lifts it up even another level, verse 26. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. The Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. God groans, Paul says. He says this to a culture who despises groaners. He says, we worship a God who groans. Jesus groans for you. Jesus groans for me. Jesus groans for the whole world because there's a life that's full, a life that is satisfying, a life that is rich and abundant and overflowing, and you and I miss it so often. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. How does this work? Here's what Paul says. Backed up to Romans chapter 5. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. We talked about that already, right? If you're going to sacrifice for someone, if you're going to suffer for someone, they better be worthy. They better have earned it. And Paul says, I don't find a whole lot of hope in that. And so Paul says this in Romans 5 verse 8. Again, it's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Unworthy. Undeserving. More often than not, making a mess of our lives, making a mess of our relationships. And the greatest person who ever lived, Jesus Christ, died for us while we were still sinners. That's our hope. My hope is not in my ability. My hope is not in my virtue, my worth. My, my, no, my, my hope is not in my ability to you know, not become an emotional wreck in the face of everything that's happening in my life and in this world. No, hope does not disappoint because Jesus Christ, in an act of complete grace for people as sin-soaked and sin-damaged and sin-stained as you and me, Jesus willingly chose to suffer. He chose to groan. He chose to die on a cross for people like you and people like me. And if we ever really understood the fullness of that saving act, we would be standing on our feet and cheering like we've never cheered for anything before in our life. Because that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why hope does not disappoint. And therefore, whatever problem, whatever trial, whatever suffering or hardship you find yourself in the midst of, God is inviting you through faith into something infinitely higher. 
something uh, surpassingly greater than just trying to make it through life, maintaining your sense of inner peace. That's not why you're walking this groaning planet, so you can maintain your inner peace. There's a conqueror in Rome, and in this letter to the church in Rome, Paul says the conqueror is someone who, no matter what's going on in the world, I am going to be unfazed by it. I'm not going to let the world get to me. And Paul says, no, no. In all these things, in all our problems and trials and suffering and hurt, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. You see what he's doing here? He's very precise in his language, very intentional in his language. There is a, a way of thinking about life that gets us to kind of here. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not us. That's not followers of Jesus. We've come, uh, Jesus has come that we may have life to the full. We are more than conquerors. So if you're sad for crying out loud, be sad and invite God into that. And if you're angry and if you're scared, feel it and invite God into that and cry out to God in the midst of it because this incredible thing starts to happen. Paul says he is convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not our pains, not our troubles, not uh, death, not the worst that life can throw at us, not heaven or hell, not angels or demons, nothing in all creation can separate us from Christ's love. So when we're feeling the fullness of our anger and our sorrow and our pain, Paul says at the same time, we can experience the fullness of God's love for us. We're not alone in it. We're more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And that's the fullness of life, a whole lot eternally greater than this that God's inviting us into. So let's stand together and let's sing this song with that understanding.